Alexander the Great podcast. Thank you, everyone who shares the show. Thank you so much. The show is built by you, 100% man. Sharing, I mean, sharing is caring. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone who donates. Thank you especially to Paul Vieira. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. From all the way from Mexico, man. Thank you for your donation. There's a link in the description, and you can find a, a link for my PayPal page and on Patreon. Please write a review on iTunes, and I will send you a gift if it's a nice and good review. And... Um, Follow me on Facebook, it's the only thing I really use, Alexander the Great Podcast. And also, I am on YouTube, and you can find there where I am using, um, when, I'm up, when I'm uploading a new episode. And also, Spotify now does a rating thing. So if you're listening on Spotify, can you please put in five stars for me, please? Thank you so much. Hope you enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think. Bye-bye. Last time we saw the start of the peace of Philocrates, a peace agreement between Athens and Macedonia. We saw Philip become president of the Pythian Games, a celebratory sports event held at Delphi in honor of the god Apollo. As a form of protest, Athens and Sparta pulled out of the games. Things are starting to show that this peace agreement isn't off at a great start. The Athenians, as we have seen, have enough reasons not to trust Philip. But their latest excuse is him not freeing the captives from Olynthus. Though he will let some of them free, just as he promised before the Panathenian Games. We see Philip want to form a better relationship with Athens, but Athens is far from reciprocating. If he's the president of the Pythian Games, fuck it, we're not going. Uh, some modern historians think Philip tried to persuade the Amphictyonic Council to send ambassadors to Athens and try to convince them to change their mind. The years we're looking at are 345 to 346 at the moment. The Athenians get together and talk in the Ecclesia, trying to figure out what they are doing and why they're doing it. Demosthenes gives his about peace speech. He simply says, you know me, I never, I've never hidden my feelings about Philip. I fucking hate that guy. But the best thing we can do is compete in the Pythian Games and avoid having an Amphictyonic Council declare holy war against us. He talks about uh, an inevitable future war, but not right now. First, they have to put military and economic matters in order. Then, <laughs> then they're going to be unstoppable. Uh, he's going to wish uh, he never took Amphipolis from them. Speaking of Amphipolis, he also says that it is possible to take their lost colony as long as they fight for it. So already, from Demosthenes' point of view, the peace of Philocrates isn't showing the best signs of longevity. The Athenians agree with him and decide to compete in the games. Once the games finished, uh, Philip calls for, a, for an Amphictyonic council and then he returned to Macedonia. He gave the city of Nikia to the Thessalians, one of the most important cities that guarded the hot gates, right, Nikia. This pissed off the Thebans, because they had even asked 
Philip for for this city specifically, but he wasn't feeling it. In Nikia, there are going to be some Thessalian guards from now on and some Macedonian forts close to the hot gates. Now, if you're Theban, you have probably had enough of Philip, right? He doesn't show any love. He doesn't give you the city you asked for, and he has an army nearby basically breathing down your neck. The other says that it's now he started to think about a military campaign against Persia. You know, maybe he could be right, who the fuck knows, but Philip hasn't conquered Thrace yet, and it would definitely make his life much easier if he could have direct communications from Macedonia to Asia Minor. At the same time, Evulos, we had talked about him in the past, he's not elected as ruler of Athens, and we've seen politicians with strong anti-Macedonian feelings. Politicians like Demosthenes, Egisipos and Iperidis take center stage. We of course know a little bit about Demosthenes. Egisipos is a another politician he's a typical military happy person his answer was always war he was a violent and nervous guy not the type of person i personally want to hang out with iperidis on the other hand <laughs> he's my kind of guy he seems like a nice bloke right he was a student of plato and isocrates he was very good with his tongue you know <laughs> according to his lady friends uh no what i'm trying to say is that he knew how to talk I'm sorry, I should have said that. Yes, he knew how to talk. And um, he was very good with his words. You know, he knew how to convince an audience. But he has a few vices that don't really let him live a completely normal life. People loved talking shit about Iperidis. He was a gambler and he only liked the hottest and most expensive prostitutes ancient Greece had to offer. He had taste, right? So there's a story that he even kicked out his son, Glavkipos, out of his house to please an escort by the name of Mirini. Talk about being pussy whip, right? And another story, this is very famous, he was hired to represent an escort by the name of Frini. A very famous lady in ancient Greece. She's the most famous escort, I think, in antiquity, probably. But I love the fact that uh, Iperidis was hired for the job, right? Because, you know, it just so happens that probably their biggest client was hired to represent their, their biggest star. Uh, Frini was taken to court by her ex-boyfriend, a man by the name of Ephthias. Ephthias says that Frini is corrupting the young ladies of Athens and that she's trying to bring in foreign gods. Sounds a lot like what they accuse Socrates of. You know, the Athenians are probably losing the creativity at this point. You have to think about something else, people. Fucking hell, they can't be all be given the same, the death penalty about the same sentence, right? Anyway, it seems a bit, seems a bit lazy. Anyway, Iperidis goes to court. He starts talking, right? He sees that it's not going his way. So he tells Frini, take your clothes off. And she complies. So she's butt naked in front of everyone, judges, audience and all. And they're all mesmerized by her beauty. And they decide to clear her of all charges. Because <laughs> why not, you know? Fuck it. Uh, I have an amazing painting by uh, Jean-Léon Jérôme on my website and on my Facebook profile, Alexander the Great Podcast. Have a look. It's in a very good painting. I really like it. And Demosthenes is 
the only one the citizens of Athens consider their true political reader. Uh, uh, not reader, leader, sorry, leader. I've had a glass of wine, sorry. And uh, and how can they not, right? He was the first one telling them we have to watch out about this Macedonian, right? He was part of the team of ambassadors sent to Pella. He didn't let Philip's charm get to him. He may have froze in front of him in the beginning, but he's over that now, you know, the new and improved Demosthenes. And the philo-Macedonian politicians, so people that actually like Macedonia and want to want them to go further, Eschinis and Philocrates are telling the Athenians that Philip's peace terms are completely within reason, especially when one would consider how much power each state had at this specific time period. They remind everyone that Macedonian Thebes cannot work together. If that were to happen, Athens would simply cease to exist. They also say it's wrong to reminisce about former glory. They mean Amphipolis and their alliances in the north. If Athens was to pursue any of those goals, they are in danger of being attacked by Philip. And it's around this time we have the rather interesting lawsuit of Timarchos against Eschines. Timarchos is saying Eschines has been bribed by Philip. Most people are saying Demosthenes, work, uh, saying Demosthenes has worked together with Timarchos for the lawsuit to take place. And let me remind you that Eschines was originally against Philip and was even sent to other Greek cities, if you remember, in order to persuade them to form an alliance against Philip. And now he can't say enough good things about him. So, you know, I don't know, fuck knows. Maybe he could have been bribed, but it does, so it does seem a bit sketchy. Eschines' comeback is a lawsuit of his own against Timarchos. He was being charged for having an unethical sex life and male prostitution, so buying male prostitutes. So he liked getting his dick sucked by men. Big fucking deal, right? But according to Solon's laws, homosexuals have less rights according um, when compared to everyone else. They can't be priests. They can't have. Um, they can't counsel civilians in court. They don't have political rights, they can't have any form of power, they can't take part uh, in the Ecclesia and other silly things like that. Whoever was found guilty, the official punishment was death. Though it wasn't always carried through, as we're going to soon see. Eschines is exempted from all charges because they found Timarchos guilty. Timarchos is embarrassed after this and decides to kill himself. From him, we have today in modern Greek the term Timarchodis, which means corrupted. Demosthenes didn't speak for his friend in court. He probably wouldn't have picked him if he knew about his homophilic tendencies. And all these things nearly worked in favor for Eschines. His career could have gotten a slight bump. In 345, the Ecclesia Chooses, uh, no, chose Eschines to represent them for an Amphictyonic council, which is being held because they want to talk about the independence of Vilos. Vilos is under Athenian rule. They're seeing, they're seeing Athens not doing so well, so they think now is the chance to escape. Demosthenes has other plans, and some say he was the one to convince the Supreme Court of 
of Greece to not send Eschines because apparently he's a public menace and traitor. They listen to him and decide to send Iperidis, who convinces the council that Vilos has to remain under Athenian rule. Apparently, maybe Philip could have been behind this decision because it would allow the peace of Philocrates to continue and the Athenians might love him a bit more. Now, for the years 345 to 344, we don't have much information about what Philip was doing. It's a slight mess. We know he campaigned against the Dardanians and the Illyrian tribe. And according to Polienos, Philip invited some of their leaders to Macedonia. So some of the Dardanians came to Macedonia. Yes, just come over, we talk it out and we move on. And when they actually arrived... He has them arrested, and then he orders his army to attack. And that's how Cletos, son of Vardilis, we talked about him a few episodes ago, became subjugate to Philip. Then he attacks a tribe called Arivei, one of the strongest tribe of Illyria, under Plevratos. And as we know, there was always going to be conflict between Macedonia and Illyria. The others like to remind us by saying that the war between them is inevitable. The war is won by Macedonia. They find some uh, Illyrian stuff to sell, so they're making a bit of money. They increase their funds, but they do suffer some losses. Around 150 cavalry members, and not just ordinary uh, cavalry, the, the Eteri, so those who are close with the king, are injured. Philip's half-brother, Postratos, dies. And during this battle, Philip will break his right collarbone. I had to fucking hurt, right? Jesus. In 344, Socrates, we talked about him in the past, will send a letter to Philip telling him he's wrong to risk his life. He should simply attack the Persians. He says that even if he wins, he is attacking an enemy that he, doesn't, that he doesn't really have to win. But if he dies, he's going to lose any evdemonia he has. Eudemonia, evdemonia, it's in Greek anyway. Evdemonia is one of those truly amazing, beautiful, ancient Greek words. It can have many meanings. The words itself can be split into um, ev which means good, and demonio. According to who you ask, you may have different meanings about this word, demonio. Plato believed that if someone was very wise and died, he would become a demonas, and that's where we get demonia from, demonio. Thales, Empedocles, and other pre-Socratics believed it meant that the soul, the soul of the universe, so demonio is the soul of the universe, Socrates himself, according to Plato's Symposium, thought that demon was something between the immortal and mortals. Seeing that gods couldn't talk directly to humans, they would talk to their demon. And if you ask a, Christ, a Christian, they may say it's a winged angel of hell or something like that, but I wouldn't ask him if I was you. Anyway, those are, that's what the words mean, right? So now I'm going to give you the meaning of the word in its totality, evdemonia, what it means. Evdemonia can mean having a successful social status. 
It can mean good fortune, but it can mean having a purposeful life. This can be achieved by building your character or by understanding yourself better. It's one of those nice words, man. I'm so proud, man. Evdemonia. It's a nice word. To this, probably Philip was thinking, this old man doesn't know anything. We don't see him, because we don't see him change his style of war. From the beginning to the end, Philip will be a warrior king, leading from the front, just like Alexander is. Alexander is, of course, going to take it from his dad. But an amazing thing to see, right? From Justin, we see also that around this time, he took his people and he moves them to wherever he saw fit. Justin makes it look like the people were not into it. He compares him to a shepherd leading the herd to various pastures depending on the weather. Philip apparently does the same, but he likes moving entire villages. Uh, I had read part of Alexander's speech a few episodes ago, right? He said that he brought you down from the mountains to the plains. It's very possible that he's talking about this very occurrence. I don't think Philip was bored, right? And he was just decided to move people depending on how he felt. Some people he moves to the northwest on the border with Illyria. From this, we can see that there are military reasons for moving people, right? Similar moves were done for other villages like Peonia and Chalkidiki. These newly formed cities could be seen as military forts. They could also be used as training camps. So youngsters would get Macedonian tactical and weapons training. Philip would see which one of them was more promising and he would later give them a shot in his own Macedonian phalanx. The enemies are nearby. It's only a matter of time until they have to put what they learn to practice. He also dried up swamps, creating more arable land. He turned grasslands into fields to be cultivated. He built dams, canals, roads, big changes, right? But as we know, when anyone makes a ton of changes, they are rarely welcomed with open arms. This is probably what Justin was referring to, right? But he didn't, but what he didn't get, what Justin doesn't get was that the Macedonian economy was in need of, of some drastic changes. The population is growing, 10,000 Illyrians, 20,000 Scythians, that's 30,000 people, right? These folks have to live somewhere, where are you going to put them? So he takes people that lived in faraway places and puts them in villages that end up being great cities in their own right. Something that also happens in these years that we're looking at, 344 to 345, is the story of Alexander and Vukefalas, uh, in the original, or Bucephalus, Bu Bucephalus, Bucephalus, it's Vukefalus, guys. Fuck the B, man, it should be a V. Vukefalus, the story is from Plutarchos, or Plutarch, as you might know him. Um, first, I'm going to read the story exactly how uh, Plutarchos says it, and then, and then we're going to comment on it. Once there was a man named Philonikos, a Thessalian that brought Philip Vukefalas for him to buy for 30 talents. They then go down to the fields to try the horse out, who looks wild and completely unruly, because he wouldn't accept a rider and wouldn't obey any command given by Philip's people, but it was wild against them. Then Philip got angry and ordered for the horse to be taken away, 
He believed it was completely untamed. Alexander, who was present during this scene, said, What a horse they're going to lose, simply because they don't have the ability and the balls to tame it. By the way, this is my translation, as you can probably tell. To begin with, Philip didn't take any notice. But seeing that Alexander kept muttering and being intolerant, he says, You judge your elders, thinking that you know more about that you know more than them or that you are better suited to tame a horse this horse says alexander oh for sure could tame it better than anyone here and if you don't what will be your punishment by zeus says alexander i will pay for the horse myself to this everyone started laughing then they agree on the price alexander then ran towards the horse then by holding the bridle and turning it towards the sun because he understands, as it seems, that the horse was scared of his shadow. After he ran by his side, he was stroking him, he saw that he was strong and had, moment had momentum, he let his upper garment fall softly, and with one jump, he manages to ride the horse safely. Then, by gently pulling on the bridle, without hurting or scarring it, he had it in his control, and when he saw that the horse stopped being wild and wanted to run, he let him gallop, and also pushing him to do so by a strong voice and hitting him with his foot. Philip's company began, to begin with, was nervous and silent, but when Alexander made the turn and returned to safely, proud and happy, then everyone erupted in cries of joy, while his father, they say, cried himself, due to the joy he was feeling. And when Alexander came down from his horse, he kissed him and said, My child, seek a kingdom that is worthy of you, because Macedonia is not enough. <laughs> what a lovely little story. Yes, it's a lovely story. I would love to believe it, but there's something missing, right? There's something doesn't make sense. Like uh, What's missing, I think, is logic, to be honest. But uh, first off, Let's start with the price, all right? But before I go there, let it be noted that, of course, gold and silver don't have the same value day by day, right? Let alone 2,000 years ago. So the, number, uh, so the numbers I'm going to be putting forward are, at best, an approximation. But it allows us to compare things and have a little better understanding about what's happening. Plutarch says 30 talents, right? If it means gold, one talent is 26 kilos, right? So one kilo of gold is 50,000 euros, dollars, roughly. It's pretty much the same thing now. So one talent of gold is 1.3 million. And Vujavalis uh, is 30 talents. That's 30 times 1.3 million, which is close to 40 million for a horse. Pretty crazy, right? Now, if he means silver... So a silver talent, one kilo of silver is roughly 600 euros. So one talent of silver is 16,000 euros. So, so Vitefalas is 16 times 16,000 times 30, which is nearly half a million euros, half a million dollars. You know, whichever way you spin it, that's a lot of money for a horse, right? And also, Philip has the most advanced elite trained army in Greece, right, at this moment. What are the chances that one of his many professional horse trainers 
couldn't tell that the horse was afraid of his shadow. Okay, yes, Alexander's a sick guy, right? I fucking love him. I'm doing a podcast about him. But let's not get carried away, man. There's too much, so much shit <laughs> being talked about him. If we just focus on what's real, we can still, we still have a bunch to talk about. But anyway, that's a story. And let's not forget that Plutarch is telling us this story. Plutarch, he's not... He he never. I don't think he even considered himself a proper historian. Once you read, once you actually read it, because he gives us other stories. He's the same person that said Olibiada, Alexander's mom, had sexual affairs with snakes, right? And when Philip tried to <laughs> tried to try to peek in, so he tried to have a look. Zeus, who had taken the form of a snake and was banging Olibiada, he got pissed at the whole situation and takes his eye as punishment. That's how Philip lost his eye, apparently, according to Plutarch. So just, yes. Anyway, but Vukifalas was real, probably. And so we should say a few things about him. The name Vukifalas was given by Alexander, apparently, because he had a large forehead. It looked like an ox, vus in ancient Greece, vod in, in modern Greek. But anyway. So, and the head is kefali, vu kefalas, vu kefalas. Others say that it was simply the name of, um, of a certain horse breed that came from Thessaly. So, uh, but to be that kind of horse, you had to have certain characteristics around the buttocks and around, you know, that area, you know, in the back area. I don't know much about horses, <laughs> but uh, which and if you had these characteristics, you'd get a hot iron stamp of an ox's head in the back, right? And that's how you get Vukifalas. You know, take your pick, you know, they both check out. But I prefer the first story, of course, because Alexander, of course, he would want to name him. He would want to give him a nice little cute name. Alex is going to have him for 20 years. He's going to be part in all of his big battles. Um, he's also going to die in battle, Vukifalas. He's going to die on the Hivaspes, Hivaspes River. Alexander is going to honor him by naming a city in Asia after him, the town of Vukifala, also known as Vukifalian Alexandria. And, and now let's get back to Philip. Philip is having problems with Thessaly. Uh, this has to do with how the Third Sacred War ended and how little the sacrilegious Phocians were disciplined. They were expecting a bit more from Philip. And Philip needs them, right? Not just their money, as we have, pre as we have previously seen. They have one of the best cavalry in Greece and they allow him access into southern Greece. And after some civil conflict in Thessaly, the victors are politicians with anti-Macedonian feelings. Within Thessaly, we have talked about the city Ferez. They never liked Philip. And now even Larissa changed their opinion about him. Larissa was the hometown of a famous ancient family called Alevades. Even Herodotus mentions him, which is fucking old, right? They started the rebellion against Philip with a man named Simos as their leader. In 345, Simos, as tyrant of uh, Larissa, cuts his own coin 
and at the same time more and more cities in Thessaly were appointing their own to govern themselves. Philip was busy with the Illyrians, as we had seen. This was until the end of 344, and when he was done, he was off to fight as the defender of freedom. <laughs> Ring any bells? Know anyone else who fights for freedom in nearly foreign lands? Um, so he goes to Thessaly with an army, and he kicks out the tyrants and uh, their supporters. He kicks them out in exile. One, uh, one of them was a man by the name of Aristomedes, a politician from Ferez, who finds refuge in Persia, and in ten years from now is going to be part of the team that fights Alexander. We know Philip is going to install Macedonian guards in Ferez, but probably other places eh, as well. A team of ten men are going to govern each town, what they would call a Vekarhia. To be one of those lucky men, you would have to be picked by Philip. So, depending on how devoted you are, you are awarded the administration. He reintroduces the system of tetrarch governing, so he splits Thessaly in four provinces, Thessaliotida, Pelasiotida, Phiotida and Isteotida. Each province has a tetrarch that again was chosen by Philip and he would of course answer to Philip. Apparently this is when the term divide and conquer was introduced, a maxim attributed to our very own Philip II of Macedonia. Uh, Macedonian coins are going to enter the Thessalian currency. Philip is trying to replace any Thessalian coins that would remind them of their rebellion. A few of Laris are going to stay in circulation because they are going to cut their own for quite some time. Isocrates tries to justify Philip's actions in Thessaly. It all happened due to the locals being irritable and having a tendency for civil conflict. Demosthenes says he took advantage of his friendship in Thessaly with the Thessalians and installed Macedonian guards in their city. <laughs> Personally, I think both are talking out of their arse. Philip doesn't care about the Thessalians, you know, so what if they fight each other, who gives a shit? And you know, yeah, look at them, they're unable to govern themselves, you know, let me go and help out. And neither is he taking advantage of their friendship, they have an alliance. When they, the Thessalians, needed help, needed his help, Philip, Philip took his ass to Thessaly with his soldiers and helped them. They then came to an agreement, they will send money and all the other things that we talked about. Now they're killing each other, and the shit's turned sour, he's in a chump, he's not just going to roll over and pretend that it's not happening. You know, he has an immediate interest in how Thessaly is governed. So, how they govern, how their economy, how their, how their economy is going to go, how their army is organized, and it should be mentioned that on a local level, there is some form of self-governing within the Thessalian tetrarchs. So they're not completely in this shit, right? Could have been much worse. And that's it for now. See you later. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.